Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Table Talk, discussions of church, theology, and culture. My name is Luke Burrow. I am the family and ministry coordinator here at CBC Elderton. With me, as always, is our lead pastor, Andrew Hall. You join us for our second episode in our series where we ask the question, is Christianity good for the world? Last week, we began with a a bit of an introductory episode where we talked about the, the changing cultural landscape that surrounds us here as God's people. And as many of you have already seen from the title this week, We want to talk about the idea of embracing reality and understanding that there are many challenges and difficulties all around us in our culture related to embracing reality. And so this week, we want to dive a little bit more into into that idea to see what we can discover. So Andrew, as we get started, maybe we can go back, look at some Mm -hmm. history and ask the question, what has happened in the past that causes uh, so many to struggle uh, to embrace reality in our uh, current day? You never start right in the moment because we we are people who are products of thinkers and philosophers and theologians and politicians and and people of of just previous generations. Even though most of us don't really realize it or are conscious of that. That's right. Uh, We've we've come through so many different ways of thinking. Uh, Really, Rene Descartes, when he would say, I think, therefore I am, he was trying to figure out uh, what is the basis of reality. Mm -hmm. And the reality was that he could think Therefore, he could understand that he was. And and out of that came a whole bunch of philosophical thinking, uh, and especially with uh, the thinking of Immanuel Kant in the 1700s. Um, Kant still is a a philosopher that that has a profound impact on modern philosophy, thought. And even if people have only heard of the name and they don't know of his noumenal and phenomenal type of concepts in terms of how he saw reality. Uh, the basic uh, idea that really Kant put forward, I, I'm really simplifying here, yeah. uh, is that our minds take in these ideas uh, and and the outward data around us. And we begin to shape it into some story or something that's meaningful, some sort of narrative in mm-hmm. us. And so then, out of Kant comes all of these studies in terms of uh, psychology and um, uh, really our our sociology and and a lot of studies uh, uh, that are focused on the inner self. And so, counseling movement comes out of this. And and really, what Kant was trying to do is is try and get inside, like, how, how is it that people process information? Uh, and, and by focusing on that inner reality, as opposed to what's outwardly real and existing, uh, there, there began to be this, this disconnect between, between the inner and the outer world. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really produced all sorts of helpful things, like we do have psychology and um, we have counseling now and 
and certainly we we are more aware of the inner world and lots to to benefit from in those things. That's sure. right. Yeah. And so uh, so I don't want to sound just as though Kant was entirely negative. I think that there were things that were helpful about what he did, but in the process what we've become as a society is we've become extremists in terms of what Kant and even Descartes before him was thinking uh, so that we've become highly individualistic and that and that we have placed the emphasis not on what is objective even though Kant would say that there were objective things yeah. there was objective realities there was objective morality even um, we've we've shifted so that basic things like how do you learn? have become less about there is a reality in the world to be embraced and more you need to discover reality. And mm. when you start to go down paths like uh, self-discovery, um, things like, well, is two plus two four or is it five? Uh, there's a sub subjectivity. Uh, there's this whole sense that uh, morality is a social construct that that the reason we we have morals is because the dominant group is trying to impose a certain power structure and we'll talk about power next week but yeah. but this whole idea that that there isn't an objective morality but rather there's something subjective and so it's what do i feel and who is trying to control me and and then there is this whole emphasis then now that has come about where um, the destruction of the outer reality means that there's a disconnect between what is empirically true and what is and and then what I feel. And so we've become a people who are supremely aware of our feelings. And so we're creating safe spaces where where uh, where where people are are feeling secure in terms of they're not threatened by any idea. So freedom of speech becomes a threat to the inner self because you can, you can hurt someone and hurting someone is not merely by physicality, uh, but it's now by emotions. And so if my emotions have been hurt and if I've been, if I've been wounded in terms of myself, well, then I need safe spaces and you're not a safe person. You're a dangerous person. Uh, whereas what danger meant even 20, 30 years ago was that I could be at physical harm and yeah. risk. Uh, and so then, then there is this burden for the modern self that I have to, I have to now, because I have disconnected the outer world from the inner world, what I have to do is I have to create myself. And so it's, why is it, uh, why is it people probably notice that tattoos have taken off yeah. and and I'm not commenting here on uh, the rightness or wrongness of tattoos. I'm just observing the fact that people it's it's commonplace now yeah. uh, to have a tattoo. In fact, to not have a tattoo is probably to be an unusual person. Yeah, you're certainly getting there. Yeah, yeah you're like you're probably in the minority not having a tattoo. Um, we we have this sense of. Uh, transgenderism, transhumanism. So what I feel on the inside becomes predominant and what is the reality on the outside? There's this disconnect. And so I must conform to, whereas in ages past, it was I must conform to what is the outer reality. Now we say, ah, now I have to conform to the inner reality. And so things like uh, the use of what pronouns do I want you to use to mm -hmm. describe me 
Um, so, so really the sexual revolution has come about uh, as part of this struggle in terms of what is reality. Is the mm-hmm. inner world real or is the outer world real? And this really starts with Descartes and Kant and it just carries on. And so for the last three, four hundred years, we've been we've been in this process of of deconstructing what is reality based off of is it the inner world or the outer world? And so here we are. Yeah. We're in a world where we're conflicted by what's inside of us and what's outside of us. And we're probably more aware, uh, we're more focused on the inner world. And I, I find it quite, uh, quite striking and quite fascinating that so many of the things that are true about our world today go back so far. This mm-hmm. is, to me, such a, such a clear indication of why it's important to understand history, the, the, the history of philosophy and of thought, you know, for, for all of you listening who thought that your intro to philosophy course in high school wasn't really all that relevant. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking back to high school and thinking about learning about Descartes and Immanuel Kant and all of that and thinking, ah, I don't really know how this plays into yeah. my everyday life very much, but here we are hundreds of years later and most people around us don't don't understand that their thought is being influenced by thinkers from centuries ago. And it definitely, definitely helps us, I think, to know that where we are right now in our cultural moment hasn't come in a vacuum. And I think for, for those of us looking to think more deeply about it, it's helpful to be able to trace back where did these things come from. And I think that will help us eventually forge a path forward as well. That's right. And so one of the, the elements of this embracing reality and how this has changed, how we've had this shift from outward reality towards inner reality, uh, part of this, I think, has been really supercharged also by uh, extreme progress in the area of technology. Yeah. We're seeing technology grow at an incredibly sure. rapid rate. And that, I think, has been a huge catalyst to a bunch of these changes. And so maybe you could spend a little bit of time speaking to how technology has played a role in our movement from, the, from com- conforming to an outer reality to then moving toward the, the inner reality and subjective truth and subjective morality and all those things. <clears throat> uh, it, really, it really starts with th- this period of enlightenment where... Uh, people discovered that they, they as rational beings could, could start to understand things and press out of the dark ages by asking questions. And, mm-hmm. and so praise God for science. Um, science has enabled us to live longer. It's enabled us to live healthier. It's, it's enabled us to, to manage disease and death in ways that are, extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, uh, science has pushed the limits in terms of uh, all sorts of things. So it used to be that um, it used to be that I was very bound. I was bound by where I lived and the time period that I lived in and the geography and my job. And suddenly science blows that apart. So just Let's just think in terms of all sorts of things. So uh, travel, 
I used, uh, if you think a couple hundred years ago, traveling was by horseback and it was arduous. It took a long time to get anywhere or to get on a ship. It would take weeks or months. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we have vehicles that allow us to go hundreds of kilometers in no no time at all. Uh, High-speed rapid transit or trains airplanes suddenly uh like i've got i've got family that are going halfway around the world um on on the weekend and suddenly there they're going to be on the other side of the world and we don't think much about it anymore. and that's just yeah. normal you yeah. get on a plane and like 12 16 hours later you're you're on the other side of the world yeah. um and so so we've we've transcended distance uh, it used to be if you wanted to watch something or listen to something, it was live. There was no recordings. Mm-hmm. Now Netflix allows me to watch whatever I want, whenever I want, and uh, wherever, whenever, wherever, however I want. And same with music. I can just yep. go on my phone. I can pull up my music app, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, and I can just click the song that I want to listen to. I don't have to wait for that band to be in town. I don't have to wait for a concert. I don't have to wait for live music. So in one sense, what has has happened is that technology has brought a sense of transcendence. And so so now I can I can move beyond um, the limits that I experience as a human being naturally. And that's developed even faster with the online world. So with the online world, I can have an online identity that's totally different uh, than my own identity. I can be anonymous online. And so it removes inhibitions. And uh, people then feel that even on social media, that they've got to curate a, a certain type of image. Uh, you know, the we can think of the Instagram mommy who blog or who posts uh, pictures of her breakfast or her kids or her devotions or whatever. Um, there's a certain Instagram or Facebook imaging that pastors feel that they have to maintain. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly what being online does is it, it can release me from, it gives me a sense that I'm quote unquote liberated from my history, my job, my location. It can compartmentalize my life because I could I can talk to people around the world anywhere anytime um, and I don't have to be me I could be whoever I want to be so you just start to take that kind of concept and then is it any wonder then that that people struggle with their identity uh, their their feelings of isolation that yeah. there's a sense of boredom in the world uh, we live in we live in this hyper individualized world and everybody is connected, and yet everybody is more lonely. Uh, and so Robert Putnam would write a book uh, called Bowling Alone. Uh, social capital, he would say, has has almost died in the United States. Mm-hmm. It used to be that you would join a bowling league. Now people are trying to find micro-communities to be a part of. And so the I generation is is people who are highly individualized. It's it's not only my iPhone, it's not only my iMac, it's not only my Wii, which is W-I-I, which mm-hmm. is two individuals, not necessarily in relationship. I can play games online as an individual with anybody who I want, wherever I want, when I want, in all those ways. And we're looking for a connection. And so technology has played this, it's amplified this sense that I can transcend reality. Yeah. And I don't have to be limited by space or time. 
I don't have to be limited by my job or my persona or my age or my gender or anything. And as a result of that, uh, people feel this sense of liberty. And at the same time, what we have found is that people are actually more lonely, more anxious, more depressed, and less connected than ever before. Yeah, I've often heard it said that technology is improving and growing and evolving much quicker than we as humans can keep up with Mm -hmm. it. And in so many ways, we have a very little idea of what we're doing and we're trying to figure it out even as it keeps getting ahead of us and ahead of us and ahead of us. And we're certainly seeing so many of the results of that now. And so as, as we've broken it down, we've got both kind of the history of thought and philosophy playing into our current cultural understanding of reality and, and then amplified by technology and just multiplied many, many times. This is, this is where we find ourselves. And we've spent uh, so far all of this episode and most of last episode now setting the, the table to then talk about what can we as Christians, as God's people do? How do we respond? We have a, a very different history to look back on. We have very different sources of truth than our than the culture around us is looking at. And we we do believe in a in an unobjective truth in the word of a transcendent God. And we want to now spend a little bit of time talking about how do we respond. And so what would you say to that, Andrew? How do we respond to all of these things as Christians? How do we maybe understand it and how do we respond to it? The temptation that came in the Garden of Eden when the serpent comes to the woman, uh, he questions, did God really say? Yeah. Um, did, did God really, like, did God really say that, that this would happen? And so there was a questioning in terms of God's moral limits that he has, God's law, really, that God had, had given to the man and the woman. And, and it challenged the man and the woman to think about, like, well, is God withholding something from me? Specifically, I think what, what the man and the woman were being challenged in that moment was, uh, God is transcendent, and in his transcendence, is he withholding transcendence from you? Mm-hmm. Because you're limited. Uh, so you won't die when you eat this fruit. Like there's a sense that you're going to go on forever. And so I think understanding that the temptation of this age, the temptation of, even though it's very subtle, there's a temptation of this age to think that um, we can be transcendent. I can transcend space by travel. I can transcend time by, by being online. I can transcend um, almost anything and what happens then is that we we fail to appreciate that we have limits. So there's all sorts of books that are coming out like why sleep is important and how people are destroying their lives by not getting enough sleep because they're pushing harder, they're working 80, 90 hour work weeks, which is not how God intended us to work. Um, we, we have a God who is transcendent. But he is also a God who is imminent. He has come near to us. So he's come near to us. First, he's made a created world. And this world, this physical world is good. So the body that he has given to me is good. 
The, the job that he has given to me is good. The place where I live is good. The people around me that are I'm to have relationships with, they are good. And not only has God created a good world, but um, I think it was Luther who would say, um, the greatest proof that God loves us and that he, that he sees this world as good is that he sent his son. Mm-hmm. And Jesus comes as a man. He embraces flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so there's this sense of the incarnation just demonstrates that, that God values and loves and embraces reality uh, this reality of around us. And so then not only does God embrace this reality among us uh, and show us that it is good, but then he sends his spirit to dwell in us. And so as a result of that, by being a people who recognize that God has created the world, he has made it, he has embraced it, he loves it, even though there is sin, he is going to redeem it. I then think that part of what we need to recognize is that human beings want to resist this sense of God coming near because we want to be transcendent. And so Paul will talk about this in Romans 1, uh, that we suppress the truth of the righteousness of God. And, and because we suppress the truth of the righteousness of God, what we end up doing, what we end up becoming is a people who we want to deny the realities outside of us because we want to feel transcendent. We don't want to feel that we're limited by this physical body, that we're limited by our gender, that we're limited by space, that we're limited by time. We want to push past it. And I think then that, that what this means for Christians is that we are, we're embracing our limitations. Yeah. Um, people, people today, they know that they are limited. They know the truth. Paul will end Romans uh, chapter one, even though people are suppressing the truth and exchanging the truth of God for a lie, even though they worship the created rather than the creator, um, then what they do is he says in Romans 1 uh, verse uh, 32 that that even though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so as a result of that, we I think we need to recognize that what does happen is that people are trying to celebrate the fact that they can be transcendent like God. And part of our... Um, part of our embracing of the Christian faith is that we're accepting our limitations. Yeah. We are, we're, we're trusting and believing that, that what has, God has given to us in terms of our limitations is for our good because he comes near to us in our limits. Our limits do not push God away. They actually are the place where God draws near because it's in our weakness that, that we discover that God has come near to us. Yeah, and as you say, this really does go all the way back to the beginning, to the the garden. This is the the same struggle that human beings have had since the beginning, and it's the the same temptation that human beings have been experiencing since the beginning, trying to to be like God, trying to transcend His truth, trying to transcend His law, trying to yeah, as you say, transcend the, the fact that we are limited and that we are finite beings. And I think as we as we recognize that 
God and his word is the source of all truth and reality for us. And as we humbly embrace those things, we find that what, what God did in sending his son to have Jesus incarnated on the earth to ultimately free us from our sinful striving to be transcendent. Mm-hmm. We, we find, I think, real, real truth and real life there. That's right. And it's very, very thankful for that. And so this is, this is where we are as God's people, as we live in a world and in a culture that it does everything it can to avoid embracing the, the truths and reality that God has created and built into this world. We can, we can look to his word. We can trust in his goodness and we could trust that even in our finite limited nature that ultimately we, rather than wanting to transcend those things, we, we embrace for our own good that which God has intended for us and created for us. Any final thoughts before we wrap up, Andrew? Um, I'll just make one comment and that is just because science can do it doesn't mean that we should embrace it. Hmm. And I would just, I would just uh, even advocate for the fact that um, this does not mean that technology is bad. It just means that technology always, we always need to be evaluating uh, technology, the advance of science in terms of God's revelation. And, and sometimes it's not clear, but time will bear that out. There are ways that, that technology will, God has given us good minds to use and to bless the world, but there are ways that humans attempt to then defy the very limits that God has put on us. And every time technology comes and brings a change, there's both good and there's bad. And so as Christians, we need to understand what is good and we need to reject what is bad. And then we need to live as people who, who embrace this world as, as God's created gift, his good gift, not merely by what we feel on the, outside, on the inside, but by what is actually there on the outside. And as we do that, we discover that we'll be the kind of people who embrace this world and love this world and care for this world in a way that is maybe confounding to people around us. Until one day that world is made new. That's right. We, we look forward to that day. Thank you for joining us for this second episode in our series as we think about the question, is Christianity good for the world? We've been talking about embracing reality. And next week, we're going to continue by thinking more, as you mentioned, Andrew, about power, which is such a such a hot topic in the, the thought of the world around us. And so we'll be looking at our, our next episode will be on humble power. We hope that many of you will be able to join us then. Until then, I hope you all have a great week. Bye, everybody. Take care.